The Major Spoilers podcast covers news, reviews, and of course, spoilers, and goes into details about the topics discussed. So if you haven't read, listened, or watched the items we talk about, you might want to come back later. Welcome to issue 199 of the Major Spoilers Podcast, the podcast for pop culture and comic fans. It's Saturday, and it's the, what, first weekend of the month, which means it's time, or is it the second weekend of the month already? Unless it's I not. I guess it depends. You might be, you might be Hello, listening. future people. That's right. And all the ships at sea. <laughs> From the world of the future, we will tell you about the plot of a movie that came out of a book that was 57 years ago. We have this. After this. this. Uh, this thing that we have been... And the snake is Titanic! <laughs> we have not been uh, keeping up on this. We should have done one in February, and we missed it. And we should have done one in April, and we just hit it, missed it by a week because we got a little crazy. But the yeah. idea behind this episode is once a month, we're going to be taking a look at a piece of uh, prose, prose book. You know, mm. something that is doesn't have pictures in it, unless there are pictures mm-hmm. just to illustrate certain ideas or facts. But... Books that are not comic books to explore some a different regions. And again, this uh, this spilled out of the growing stack of books that are next to my my chair or next to the bathroom or next to the bed or whatever of things <laughs> that I've been buying over the years because I'm like, oh, this sounds great. I want to read it. And then, of course, it just gets into the pile and gathers dust. So I've been forcing myself to try to read books in February. Uh, I picked up the Chinatown Death Cloud Peril from Paul Malmont. The book came out in 2007. Uh, Rodrigo had gotten me hooked on, and I've seen the movie a billion times, Mm -hmm. The Maltese Falcon. And he said, hey, you know, I read that in like one night because it was so awesome. And so I said, okay, well, I know I have that book floating around here somewhere. I will read that for the month uh, month of April. And so we decided to mash these two together into one giant noir pulpy episode. Mm hmm. So before we get into our conversation about each of these books, Matthew, what do you like about, or maybe you don't like, noir or pulp tales? I like noir and pulp tales when they're done well. And a lot of times, honestly, for me, that means when they are actually pulp era. Right. A lot of the pastiche that has come around recently doesn't appeal to me. I like that whole first person narrative of you know a character who is obviously human and obviously mm-hmm. has faults and Sam Spade is you know very clearly the archetype of that you know that nosy gumshoe with a heart of gold who may right. you know the Rockford t- archetype is, Rockford's is the same probably way. the closing yeah. well yeah. he would be very he you would know, be like um noir detective of the 70s mm-hmm. uh, right you, you and can't i, even I put, like that I, I, I think I kind of like the whole, you know, the kind of, yeah, it was raining in the city that day. It was right. a hard rain. Right. I love that. And I every time I read anything, I hear Humphrey Bogart. Yeah. In my head. Right. Uh, actually, it's sort of a sort of a composite of uh, Humphrey Bogart and Edward G. Robinson with a little bit of, of uh, who is that guy? So Rich, you know Rich the one. Little. Rich Little thrown in. No, not Rich Little. Jimmy and Stewart. by the way, you can buy. Jimmy Stewart. Yeah. No, no, that'd be that, that, that'd be that'd be more over here. I think the oh. thing I think the thing that I like about the noir but, tale, especially in noir movies, is the fact that these are usually movies that don't conform to what a lot of the Hollywood system movies were like, where it always ends with a happy ending. Mm-hmm. And the noir, noir tales, sometimes the good guy doesn't win. Sometimes the dame that he's in love with, he has to kill or turn in, mm-hmm. or perhaps the character that you're rooting for actually dies. 
And it's, so it's very gritty and it's very, I don't know, the, the whole fact that it, every, it, most of the ones that I like are in black and white and very contrasty and stark and really stand out on the screen compared to movies that came later and that were in color uh, just really feel, I don't know, more real, more interesting. Mm. I mean, look at, um, uh, what was the other one? The, um, it's not Sunset Boulevard, which kind of falls into that, but the other Detective Dashiell Hammett movie, uh, ah, crap it, I'll, th- I'll think about it in a moment, but it follows the same kind of, of idea, or mm-hmm. even if you're re- watching a lot of the Hitchcock films, it falls into the same idea. So when we read books like this, I love it because this gets into the heart of colorful language, mm-hmm. right? Where you really start to layer adjective upon adjective to describe a certain situation. And you might spend a long time. She was a blonde, the kind of blonde that would make a bishop kick a hole in a stained glass window. But not as crazy as that. But you get the you get that kind of idea. And in Maltese Falcon, especially, you see a lot of that. And even in death uh, in the Chinatown Death Club Peril, you see that as well. As far as the pulpy stuff goes. I've talked before about how I got into Doc Savage and just the pure love of, of reading a lot of those tales from back <laughs> well, in the day. Doc Savage got into you. And wow. I just find it, you know, fascinating to read these books from back then and see how they've influenced everything since then. So that's what I like about Noir and Pulp. Rodrigo? Um, definitely. Um, it, I th- I think it's interesting, you know, the... That, you know, the Maltese Falcon, the book, the Maltese Falcon, is kind of retroactively Noir because, right. you know, right. it, it's... Noir because of noir film, right? Or film noir, um, and but since the Maltese Falcon itself is such a staple of film noir, it's kind of hard to read through this. And even if you haven't seen the movie, of not thinking of it like it's in black and white, right? Except maybe doing that um, like Sin City thing, where like when they start describing the chick with red hair, like yeah. you actually see her hair is red, yeah. Or you know, I don't know, Wacko Warner's nose. I'm not sure. <laughs> um, <laughs> And and the Maltese Falcon specifically, th- there's just something <laughs> about the the crime fiction book, like even Agatha Christie stuff mm-hmm. and, and all that stuff is like, is this kind of very cool, but in very specifically imperfect central character. Um, you know, if you read Sam Spade's description, I believe in what at one point the the Dashiell Hammond actually says he looked rather like a blonde Satan. Yes, like he is ugly. He's an ugly guy, right? Or What's when his they're, name? they're Hercule per- Poirot yeah, is Hercule is is, is, mm-hmm. is ugly. Like these guys are not like they're cool, right? But they're not they're cool because they they don't conform to society, right? Right. You know, at a time when. Uh, people were trying to be like really slick and really mm-hmm. cool and a lot, you know, like their own kind of jazzy cool. Right. Um, these guys are kind of ugly guys that are taking care of business, mm-hmm. and that that character is now kind of out of control mm-hmm. in, in current media. Mm-hmm. But back then, under you know, under the restraint of a society that was not very permissive, right? Um, was a really interesting, really cool character to read about. Well, and we'll talk about that when we get to the Maltese Falcon mm-hmm. uh, later in the show, because, man, some of the stuff that, if you're familiar with the movie, when you read the book, you're like, whoa, they, they yeah. really wrote about that in magazines that you could buy for 10 cents? So oh, yeah. one, of the, one of the cool things about the pulp era is that, I guess to me, in how characters like uh, Doc Savage and the Shadow and the Crimson or the Avenger and some of these others mm-hmm. were just these Smith and Street churned out every month books and literally 
100,000 words or whatever it is length books in a month's time. And the fact that every time it came out, you would see Lester Dent, or I'm sorry, um, Lester Dent as writing as um, uh, Kenneth Robeson. And what was, um, who wrote The Shadow? What was, not Walter Gibson, but what was the real name of The Shadow's writer, Matthew, do you remember? Uh, I thought it was Walter Gibson. No, he wrote under a pen name as well, I want to say. Well, he was actually drummed up by, as a, um, uh, well, by Smith and Street. (laughs) By Smith and Street. Street and Smith, yeah. Yeah, Yeah, I guess it was created by um, Walter Gibson. Walter Gibson. Yeah, but I could have swore he went under a different uh, name as well uh, on the covers. But it doesn't matter. The fact is that oftentimes... A lot of these people that were using the name Kenneth Robeson or Walter Gibson or whatever mm-hmm. were Maxwell Grant. Ghost, yeah, Maxwell Ghost Grant. That's writers. Ghost writer. There you go. Underneath that. I thought it was Grant. I was going to say Max Grant, but I didn't sound right for some reason. But yeah, Max Grant. You were right. They were just ghostwriting it. And so while Walter Gibson and Lester Dent wrote a huge chunk of these tales, mm-hmm. they didn't write everything. And then so when you actually, to me, for years, I kept going when I first discovered Doc Savage and was reading through it. I was like, man, this Kenneth Robeson guy, I've got to find more of his stuff. And I kept reading it and kept reading it. And then at one point I saw a, a book cover. I don't know if it was a reprint from the 60s or a new collection in the 80s that said by Lester Dent. And I was like, what the hell is this Lester Dent guy? And then started to discover a lot about what was going on in the publishing industry back then and how even cutthroat it was mm-hmm. back then for writers to nab a really cool title. And that's kind of what prompted, I think, uh, Paul Malmont to write uh, the Chinatown Death Cloud, Cloud Peril, in which he takes these characters, mm-hmm. not not the characters of Doc Savage in the Shadow, but the writers, but who takes were the writers who are writing about these characters and spins off. A, uh, a fantastic pulp uh, tale. Now, as I mentioned back in February, I attacked the Chinatown Death Cloud Peril from Paul Malmont, and he does have a good, a great love for pulp, and we'll talk about the, his current tie into comic books in just a little bit. And Chinatown is really a, an attempt for him to bring back those thrilling uh, adventures from yesterday, yesteryear, but in a really unique twist. So instead of featuring the characters that we know from the pulp, uh, pulp books, Malmont tells a really cool tale that features the authors of these pop tales having their own adventures. So in the pages of this book, we meet Lester Dent, the creator of Doc Savage, Walter Gibson, who of course created The Shadow, L. Ron Hubbard is one of the characters in the book. He goes around calling himself The Flash with a capital T. And so the first time I read The Flash, I was like, who in the heck is is he talking about? You know, The Flash did this, and The Flash just feels like this. And then I had to go back and reread and go, holy crap, It's we're seeing inside the mind of L. Ron Hubbard. I thought that was amazing. We get to meet, uh, well, we get to meet a couple of the other characters, but I'll, I'll tell you about that in a little bit. What happens is these writers are trying to best themselves, and who can dream up the best pulp tale? And we end up as readers learning about the Sweet Flower War, this gang war that happened in Chinatown that ended with this mysterious locked room mystery. And I don't know if this was a real tale that Malmont uh, researched or if this was something he cooked up for this book. Uh, but it gets the writers thinking about, well, how did this how did this really happen? How could you solve, how could you take this real tale and turn it into a pulp tale by creating this fantastical ending? And they kind of start to all think, how can I write this and best the other person? And L. Ron Hubbard wants to get out of writing the, the, the Western tales, the Tencent Westerns, and get up to the slick print magazines where Dent and Gibson are at. And, of course, uh, Gibson, at one point, we learn, screwed over Dent in, in a story. 
and of Dent really having these problems of dealing with Gibson, just hates the man, and how they all try to be very competitive with one another. And so with no real resolution in, the, in these real-life events, Gibson and Dent go about trying to figure out how the murder was really committed, committed. And as they go about their adventures, we get introduced to the fact, well, we don't get introduced to the character until much later, but we discover that H.P. Lovecraft has died. And Walter Gibson has to go to his funeral and take care of him. And when he and L. Ron Hubbard, who, for whatever reason, wants to tag along, I guess he thinks he's <laughs> going to get, I guess some of this writing charm is going to rub off on him or whatever. They go to Providence, Rhode Island to attend his funeral. And there the duo learn about this black frigate that has this sense of evil about it. Nice. And possibly a bunch of zombies roaming around the streets at night in the towns of Providence. And it gets a little, little weird after that. If the if zombies don't already it trick you out, gets weird. It gets weirder than that. Not That's only, the point where L. Ron Hubbard is teamed up with Lester Dent to go to the funeral of H.P. Lovecraft. Of, which, and again, that's we'll talk, where it gets weird <laughs> for you. Now, Lester Dent and his wife Nora they take a completely different route, and they explore the nature of Chinatown itself. They have some good friends down in Chinatown. They go down there all the time, and there they uncover this opium den, den in this abandoned theater that serves as a front for this Chinese warlord who is trying to plot to take control over Mao and what's the other guy uh, that took over in China. Essentially, he wants the communists out and he wants to set himself up as a ruler. And the two stories end up eventually dovetailing with one another and they do it very nicely into the final act of the book. And it just turns into this huge grand adventure that has Dent uh, or not Dent, but uh, Gibson haunted by the, the specter of the shadow or his belief of what is the shadow. Uh, and he ends up becoming the real hero of the story by saving half of New York from this literal death cloud mm-hmm. that is going to kill everyone. Now, before this is all over, I said there were a few other authors that make their appearance. Now, we mentioned the death of H.P. Lovecraft, but are you prepared for a zombie H.P. Lovecraft? Nice. Are you ready for Robert Heinlein to appear in the story? Are you ready even for Orson Welles to make an appearance in the story? How about Howard? Uh, Howard... Does not, hmm. uh, at least in my I memory. Think Howard there, may have been already dead. There are a by couple of point. characters that go by a different name. I'm almost hmm. certain that Asimov or Bradbury or one of these other science, sci-fi, sci-fi writers. pulp writers of that time period were about to pop up. If given just a few more pages, they would have done it. And there's <laughs> one character that's a cowboy character that I know I should know, but I just can't figure out who he is. And it's not Will Rogers and it's not, you know, Hopalong Cassidy or anything hmm. like that. Um, but it may be somebody rather important, and it just slipped my mind. The Chinatown Death Club Peril is a great adventure story, but it's also a story that talks about love and marriage, what it means to be a father, an absentee father, mm-hmm. and really what it means to be a hero and what you're willing to do to go to become that hero and set aside all of your current positions in life. And Gibson, in his position, is very wealthy, owns his own train car can travel anywhere that he wants, has his own manservant just taking care of that train car 24-7 so that whenever he's ready to roll, he's there. He's got his own essential driver, very much like the Shadow had his own taxi cab driver. He has his own driver that shows up to take him wherever he wants to go. But the problem is we're really screwing around with history. Mm -hmm. Now, Malmont has an interesting take on history. It's clear he's done his research necessary to make the city of New York and the characters really breathe, but he does take a lot of liberties with them. I don't know if Gibson and Dent ever met each other in real life. Don't know if they ever met L. Ron Hubbard in real life. But it's this historical fact mixed with 
factual fiction that makes you wonder just how much of this story is true. So you're going to have to, if you want to find out what's real and what's not real, uh, you're going to have to do some history lessons. Mm-hmm. Now, in the case of the zombies, I'll give you a little hint. It has to do with a, a form of mustard gas left over from World War I that the military is trying to sell to the Chinese, nice. which turns you into <laughs> a melting-faced, out-of-control zombie-type character. Nice. And while Gibson does come off as the hero of the book, Malmont takes the Lester Den approach when telling this pulp story. Because this mustard war gas, you know, this toxic gas is really based on science. And that's what Lester Dent wrote all of his Doc Savage stuff. There was very little mystical. It always had a scientific explanation. And that's what he does in this story. And even though most of the book has the central characters apart from one another, the story is really crafted well. I mean, there's moments where you might wonder where the heck the story is going, especially when it diverts all of a sudden to China and you're following this guy in China and you're like, where, how did we make this jump from this chapter to this chapter? But it all comes together in the end, and it comes together perfectly. And it's only when you reach this last page that you really see how well laid out Malmont did with this story. For fans of Pulp, I think this book is going to entertain you, even though I may have spoiled part of the ending for you. Mm. But as soon as the reader realizes that this is really a Pulp tale, you automatically know how it's going to end. The heroes are going to win, the bad guys are going to die, and of course you can't have... You can't have uh, L. Ron Hubbard get cacked in the in chapter two because that's just not how it would play out in in history. Right. Right. Um. Let's see. Uh, the bad guy disappears. You know, he does make his escape to where maybe just maybe there could be a sequel to this book, but really, I don't want to see a sequel to this book. It really stands alone as a tale that uh, deserves really a good place on your bookshelf. As I mentioned, this book came out in 2007. I can't believe I waited until this long to actually sit down and enjoy this book. Well, it had no pictures. Well, no, it didn't. And really, when you read the first chapter and you're reading about the um, the Sweet Blossom or the Sweet Lotus War or whatever it was, uh, you almost get lost in the telling of that tale because it's just like, this is just too much to try to keep track of. But as you move through the book, I was even taking notes here and there trying to keep the characters straight. Uh, once you get past maybe the first three or four chapters, then everything settles down and in, in, in place. Uh, as I said before, it's clear that Melmont understands pulp tales, which is why I was really excited. And here's the comic book connection. He is the writer currently writing DC's Doc Savage series. And I think that's really cool. A lot of the feeling from the Chinatown Death Cloud peril is reflected in the current Doc Savage, uh, Savage series, which, again, makes this trip down into the pulp, uh, pulp reader world such a fun experience. Um, what I am surprised about, though, is that no major spoilerite or no major spoiler rights when we announced this back in February, mm-hmm. has ever read this book. Yeah. Because no comments were made about this over the last two months. And so spoiler rights, if you're looking for a good book to read, pick up the Chinatown Death Cloud Peril right now. I highly recommend it. It'll look good on your bookshelf. Uh, but if you don't want to drop a few books, bucks on the book, then I say just head on down to your local library and check it out. I'm giving the Chinatown Death Cloud Peril four stars. Nice. It's really, it's really good. Okay. We're going to take a quick break. We're going to come back and we're going to talk about the April book of the month, Maltese Falcon by Dashiell Hammett. All right. So that was uh, Chinatown Death Cloud Peril, but probably the king of all noir books mm. has to be the Maltese Falcon. Ca-ca. Ca-ca. There, there are no Ca-ca. actual falcons in it. <laughs> 
Rodrigo, give us like give us a break. Tequila Mockingbird. There, aren't, there isn't any actual tequila. What? <laughs> <laughs> All right. So, like I did with Chinatown, why don't you break us down with the uh, the Dashiell Hammett? All right. So, the Maltese Falcon is uh, a story about Sam Spade. Sam Spade is a private eye. He's got a partner that he private eyes around with, um, <laughs> named Archer. Right. And this woman who acts innocent, but to Sam's keen skills looks like a trouble walks in and says i need you to find my sister oh my sister oh does she come out and say that she's bridget o'shaughnessy in this no she starts out as miss wonderly oh that's right miss wonderly oh you gotta Um, find my sister she's been run off with a man that's right my parents are coming back from new york oh please please sir help me help me yep so he's like all right the money's good yeah like a lot of a lot of money for that time i mean he even purposefully overcharges her mm-hmm. to uh to see how far she'll go in that oh yeah he's you know sam spade is out for himself he's no super duper pulp hero he's yeah, yeah. he's out for his own gains right i think um, it's sam Schwarday, isn't it like that that singer from the 80s no not not Sade. sorry matthew Schwarday. it's there's a p in there <laughs> um so he goes out, starts investigating. He sends out his partner to start sniffing around, right. and his partner gets killed. Oh, it's terrible. My partner dies. Oh, woe is me. Oh, woe is me. And, of course, he hated his partner. Yes, which we find um, out. Which we find out later. And the police like him for the murder. Right. And they like the guy he's investigating, and the police are just kind of not very good. The police just come off as a bunch of buffoons, They right? They really I mean, do, you know, and they're not very good at their job. They're kind of just trying to pin this on someone yeah. so they can just be rid of this case it already. Doesn't hap- it doesn't help Spade's case that he was doinking his uh, yeah, former partner's was, yeah. wife. And um, that's the thing I mentioned uh, in the previous segment, the thing that I was really surprised about, because if you've watched the movie, mm-hmm. there's a little kissy-kissy here. Not a much. Right. But man, they go into some detail. Not a lot of detail, but they well, talking about some sexy getting it on action in this book. Oh, yeah. Which for the time, when this <laughs> book came out in uh, 29... That's probably, I wonder if they had to put this book, The Black Mask, which was the magazine that uh, mm-hmm. Maltese Falcon appeared in. I wonder if that had to be an under-the-counter book, it, or if that was right been. there on this, top of the stands. The, the Maltese Falcon, the, the book is sexy, it's violent. Very violent. It's, it doesn't sugarcoat anything, mm-hmm. you know, I mean, you know, Sam Spade is the hero, he's the main character, but he kills people. Yeah, he, he does. You know. He's not afraid to punch. He's not afraid to punch. He there are times when his life is in danger and he reacts like somebody would if their life is in danger. Mm-hmm. Um so somebody else shows up at his place and he's like, You gotta find me this Maltese Falcon, man. Joel Cairo. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> Which you know, you know, you cannot separate him from Peter Lorre. Peter Lorre. Peter yeah. Lorre. Just like, just like what Matthew I don't know if it was saying in this recording <laughs> or pre pre talk that Matthew, you have a hard trouble reading anything that Sam Spade would say outside of the Humphrey Bogart voice. <laughs> mm-hmm. I have trouble reading any noir story outside. Philip Marlowe, whatever it is, it's for some reason it's always got that kind of a Bogart thing to it, see? With a little bit of that Edward G. Robinson, see? That's how it goes in my head, yeah. Which, again, follows that long, proud tradition of, you know, here's an ugly, hard-boiled detective in the in the book, which is then... Played by a very clean-cut movie star, right? In the uh, in the movie, 
Um, At least it was Bogart. I mean, Bogart was yeah. about as close as yeah, big and ugly well, as you would ever get. Well, what's interesting is the Humphrey Bogart movie was not the first movie of the Maltese Falcon. There was one mm, made I in, I think Maltese Falcon was 31. 41, and there was one made in 1931. Yeah. Yes, that had uh, Ricardo Corlez or Corlese as, uh, as Sam Spade. And that was a pre-code production, so I would really like to see a 1931 version to see how closely it ties with this, because pre-code, you could get w- away with a lot more stuff than you could in the code version with Humphrey Bogart. So, oh, yeah, definitely. Yeah, so this uh, grand story that we learn about the about this bird, mm-hmm. this thing that dreams are made of, or whatever That's that they right. say. That's right. It is so valuable that shut up, it's valuable. <laughs> That's how valuable it and is. And there's a good <laughs> section of the book where they go into describing the whole history of the bird mm-hmm. and, and its value and everything, but something's not straight with that Joel Cairo guy. That's right. Um, and if you've seen the movie, you you know, not straight might be <laughs> the way to go with it, but that's not important. <laughs> like, he's supposed, well, and, and he's supposed to yeah. come across as, as just sleazy Slimy, in yeah. every way, and they talk about the way he smells, and he's all right. perfumed and right. effeminate and stuff like that, which, you know, back then would have definitely led you to not trust somebody. Right, you right. Know? Like, they definitely play to all that stuff as him being foreign right. and weird and effeminate, and he smells good, which yeah. is not how you want a man to smell, I right, guess. Exactly. The complete and, opposite of yeah, Sam Spade. Of Sam Spade, exactly. Right. Um, in Chardet. fact, it's it's funny, yes, he he looks like Charday. <laughs> um, her his love is king. So, um, he we finally meet. I believe like the like Cairo tries to search his office, and Spade beats him up. Right, and we start discovering connections between all these characters. Right, um, between him and Gutman. Right, this um, new character. Yeah, right. Who is the fat man yes, for a long time man. until we finally find out his name? Between and his name is Gut. Man, that's right. Yeah. This, you know, this like well, this kind of fiction. Yeah, you know, it it really like here's a character. You know, Sam Spade. Who yeah, is Sam it, Spade? Let's call it a spade a spade. He's gonna call it like it is. Exactly. Let's talk he calls about it like the... it is. He is sharp. He is an angular man. He yeah. is described as a cone, basically. Yeah. Let's let's um, talk about the foreigner Cairo. That's right? right. Let's talk about the fat man Gutman. That's right. The yeah. redhead is called Bridget O'Shaughnessy. Yeah. <laughs> So, you know, it's, it's to a certain degree, it's, you know, that kind of determinism. It's that kind of, you know, a man named Otto Octavius becomes Dr. Octopus kind of thing. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and there's a name for that, but I think it is determinism. I don't know. I forget what it is. Um, but, uh, yes, we start seeing connections between uh, Cairo, Gutman, and Bridget O'Shaughnessy, who we find out, what we find out is Miss Wonderly's right. real name. Right. And that she is, you know, just as big of a scumbucket yeah. or bigger than the other two. And right. she's in it to get this bird as well. Right. And nobody knows where the bird is. Apparently, it was supposed to come in on a ship. Mm-hmm. Ship burns. Meanwhile, the police are still hounding Sam Spade over this death. Mm-hmm. He's trying to protect himself. He's trying to figure out, again, looking out for himself, how can he make some money on this deal? Yep. He's already been promised $5,000 for the recovery of this bird. He tries to negotiate for more money. And after he finds out what it is, he definitely wants more money. Mm. And you start to see some things click in his head as you read this book. It's not, I don't, you know, Dashiell Hammett doesn't spell out exactly everything that's going on in Sam Spade's head. Otherwise, it would ruin uh, yeah. the story. But we start and to see. And it is see, a third person narration, which yeah. is, you know, 
Which is helpful. Okay. Yeah. And but but it does stay firmly with Sam Spade throughout the whole piece. Mm-hmm. Everything that we hear of this fire that took place on the ship or the meeting that Gutman, Cairo, and O'Shaughnessy had on the ship uh, are all told through a secondary account from mm-hmm. someone else of this is what we think happened. That Sam hears, yeah. You never yeah. you the, the narrator never leaves Sam, right. I believe. Right. Right. Yeah. And I, I kinda like that kind of storytelling because oh, that definitely. does leave open a lot of interpretation. Well, and of what's it makes going on. it makes for a good detective story, right? It it kind of prevents your detective from making ridiculous intuitive leaps. Yeah, um, right. Which you know, uh, up until like Sherlock, you know, which even though for a while detective fiction had had actual deduction and actual piecing together of stuff, right? There was still plenty of knockoff. Um, detective fiction that was just yeah. like here's this huge lead to B to C and, to D yeah and yeah. backwards we're going to explain why it's true but not wh- how the um, Sherlock detective Holmes. came up with it Sherlock you Holmes know? had a lot of that that yeah. was a lot it, of problems with reading Sherlock it's Holmes it's stuff that borders on the supernatural like basically them be then having you know ESP yeah powers far beyond yeah, that exactly. mental powers far beyond the normal man what's interesting though is as you say we're taking these great leaps. I think Hammett falls into this trap in this book because everybody's looking for the bird and then all of a sudden Captain Jacoby coincidentally whatever shows up at Sam Spade's door with the bird yeah. and dies. Right? That to me is a I had a problem with a bit that of part a Deus Ex Machina. Yeah, it was because it's like okay, it's like almost and I don't remember if this if this story appeared in multiple versions of Black Mask magazine, or if the whole book appeared in one magazine, I'm not quite sure on how. I doubt it because you know a lot of the pulp tales would be serialized. Mm-hmm. Some yeah, of them it was a serialization. Some of them would be self-contained, like the Doc, Doc Savage and the and the Shadow stuff were all self-contained in one magazine. This, this one, one was a serialization. It had to have been serialization. So I don't know if the editor was finally said, "Hammett, get to the point," and this is where Captain Jacoby comes into the picture. It'd be interesting, and in your book, Rodrigo. Was it broken down into... Chapters? Well, I mean, it's broken down into chapters, but was it broken down into segments, like books, book one, book two, book three, which would have appeared in the magazine that way? No, I don't think so. Okay. Um, It's broken down into chapters, and the chapters are titled... Yeah. In super cool ways. Yeah. Like... um, What's one of the last Every Crackpot. Yeah, yeah. And... Uh. uh, the third murder. O'Shaughnessy and, and Spade get it Emperor's on. The Emperor's Gift. Yeah, Sh- yes. O'Shaughnessy and Spade get it on. Um, there's a mysterious figure following them around as Spade is trying to piece together who's killing who, some wiry kid guy. Mm-hmm. It all comes that uh, after Jacoby dies and Spade runs off to try to figure out what's going on. We haven't really mentioned the secretary. Effie. Effie, very much in here. Yeah. And she's a unique character in herself, too, because she knows that Spade is sleeping with uh, Archer's wife. Mm-hmm. And yet, at the same time, there's hints and illusions that she might have oh, yeah. been the uh, the love of, of Spade at one time. Mm-hmm. But she's also somewhat gullible in that she gets a phone call and swears up and down that it's O'Shaughnessy calling and saying, Oh, Sam, you got to rush and go... Go to a rescue only to find out that it's a it's a trap. There's a trap. There's a trap. <laughs> but Spade does something very smart in that he goes and and um, what was it mails the bird to himself or puts it in a locker where he can't mm-hmm. get it until a certain point of time. Yep. And then everybody winds back up in Spade's apartment. 
and this is way at the very end of the book. And the police show up. Well, Wait. the police haven't shown up yet because this is the weird part. And this is the part of the book that I just did not care for at all. Mm-hmm. Sam solves, and I don't know what page it's on. It's different on the books. Yeah. Sam solves all the myrtle murders. Hey, this guy yeah. killed Archer. This guy killed um, the other guy that he was following. Whatever. You hired this guy to kill this other guy? Yes. Uh, Floyd Thursby. You killed Thursby. You killed my partner, Archer. You did this. You did this. Here's how you're connected. Here's how you're connected. And at that point, I kept going, why is there so much more of this book going on? You know, mm-hmm. it's almost like two more chapters, I think, yeah. in this book. And so they decide to wait out in Archer's room for the, the until morning when he can go pick up the bird. And we have to read about the whole night, essentially. Yeah. And that's the part of the book I just couldn't stand. I was like, come on, get on with it. We already know <laughs> how, we already know, you know, who killed who and how Sam is setting everyone up. And then it becomes a mental game between the characters. Yeah. Until finally the police show up and then certain people have run off, certain people arrested, you know. Certain uh, people Osh- are dead. Osh- yeah, some people are dead. Uh, uh, Cairo and the uh, skinny guy are dead, right? Or is Cairo? The can't kid. Remember. Yeah, the kid. Um, yeah, I'm pretty sure the kid dies. Yeah, he dies. I can't Wilmer's remember. dead, yeah. I can't remember if uh, if Cairo dies or not, but you know Gutman is off to Istanbul or wherever where he thinks the bird might show up next, mm-hmm. and O'Shaughnessy is maybe going to go with him, but doesn't. And right, it's I mean it just turns into this tr- the tragic part of these kind of tales mm-hmm. is the hero and the and the girl don't end up together at the end. Oh yeah, the story's over, but it's not like the hero wins. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, he, he talks back to her when she says that, hey, I'm in love with you. And he knows that oh, yeah, she's full she's of crap. Him, yeah. yeah. And essentially just turns her over. And he turns over O'Shaughnessy as Archer's killer. Uh, he blames uh, Wilmer uh, for... Um, shooting Gutman. Thurs- yeah, shooting Gutman. Later on, that's when they when they catch up with Wilmer. But mm-hmm. I think Wilmer killed Thursby. Um, and then they when they go to get Wilmer, he's already killed Gutman. Yeah. And everybody dies, essentially. <laughs> and uh, it's, I don't know. Uh, we so you don't, didn't like that? You didn't like the way that it ended? No, I, I liked how it ended because it's very typical of, of the books that we see in this. I just don't like the whole chapter that we had to read uh-huh. or the two chapters that we had to read of, and then the next hour ticked by and the yep. sun had not come up yet. And then Gutman said, oh, do you think that, the, that it's open, that you can retrieve the bird yet? Ah, give me another hour. And then we have to read about another hour that passes. Mm-hmm. And we see the little mind games going on, going yeah. on to that. But I don't think we had to read that for as long as we had to read it. Mm-hmm. That was my main frustration with this, with this book. Um, what happens with the bird? What does happen with the it bird? It is not really spelled out in the book. You know, we know it's been mailed off to somebody, but, mm-hmm. you know, Archer being Archer, I mean, I'm sorry, Spade being Spade, you'd think that he'd go does and retrieve it, the bird he, and he would have it. I think he gives the bird to the cops. Yeah, isn't there something about the bird not being as valuable as, or not? Yeah, that it's a fake yeah, because a fake. Gutman tries to smash it and he's like, wait, it's a fake. It's yeah. a trap. Bah, 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 bah. It's a fake. Yeah, that's it. Um, but still, I, I don't know. Uh, that section of the book, the just waiting section, kills it for me. The ending I thought was great, especially mm-hmm. when Spade turns on O'Shaughnessy and just gives her the old what for. Yeah, and essentially says, "Here's what a terrible person you are. I may be bad, but you're worse." Yeah. And turns her over to the cops, and then he and Effie—I uh, don't know—seems well, like they're going to go get it on. 
But they don't. Yeah, they don't. I, I mean, uh, honestly, and the real, she's, she's the real ending of the book. Yeah, she's disgusted by him. He's, you know, she's like, I know you did what you needed to do, but you know, I just can't be around you right now. Yeah, and then Archer's wife shows back up. Yeah, and that's like, ah, come on, I think dealt with her already. But yeah, it just is kind of like continues. I, I I like that. I like that, and like that ending where she's like, where she is reminded of the kind of man that he is, and that. Well, it's not it, he's not a bad man, but it's like he is that guy once again who doesn't fit into society, who right. does what it he needs to do to a survive and b get the job done, mm-hmm. you know, and and he's always looking out for himself, and it's like, you know, from beginning to end, it's interesting because from beginning to end, Sam Spade is Sam Spade. He doesn't right. have a lot of he character growth. Change. He doesn't yeah. change. It's always him, like. But it's it's okay because, you know, from his perspective, which is pretty much what you always have, the world is changing around him. Right. It's not like he has discovered this world and now he needs to become a different person to deal with it, like, you know, most narratives go. Mm-hmm. It's he is this person who is in this little box and the world, like everything he knows about the world just flips over every other page. Mm-hmm. And he needs to actually maintain his own personal code of whatever ethics and integrity and whatever and as this world kind of flip-flops and keeps throwing him curveballs yeah and yeah and he's probably hardened from the war from world war one i'm sure he was involved in that because this came out in like i said 29 so Mm -hmm. he would be as old as he's portrayed in the book he's someone that's probably seen some horrors and is not shaken by that yep the fact that effie wants to continue to work with him and just doesn't say you know i quit is also Mm -hmm. a surprise says a lot about her oh yeah now, and, and they've probably had situations like maybe not quite as big as this, right? Because this is, you know, presumably the biggest case of Sam Spade's life. Right. Or otherwise, it wouldn't be as interesting, right? Um, but you know, similar situations where she, she, she sees that that charisma, her charismatic, and you know, in her own eyes, really interesting boss is actually kind of a bad man. Yeah, kind of a dick. Yep. Yeah, Matthew, a been private kind of- dick. <laughs> hey, I see what you did there. Matthew, you've been kind of quiet. You want to throw in some thoughts or, or reactions to uh, after reading this book? I don't know how many times have you read this book before? Uh, never. And what? I'm going to be honest with you. I did read this kind of hurriedly. Sure. Because I didn't, I didn't get my copy until about two days after the last time we planned to actually read it. Oh, okay. So, but I, being more familiar with the movie, I do like a couple of things. I like the way they go into depth on certain aspects of the characters, but then they don't explain. They don't ever come out and explain what's really going on in Sam's head. It's a third person narrative. So it's not like a, I, you know, I'm the best there is at what I do. It's not like, you know, there's a flat out explanation. I'm not clear at the end, whether he's a good guy hanging out with bastards to try and get in with the bastards so he can find out what bastardry they're up to and bust them. Or if he really is one of the bastards who's trying to pass himself off as one of the good guys. That is kind of the, what I think Hammett's trying to let you decide at the end of the book. Oh, yeah. He definitely the walks the, the line, yeah. Yeah, but at the same time, you know, this appeared in Black Mask magazine, which was not, you know, was not a top-tier uh, title at the time. So he, yeah. I, I don't know, there's another book, I, I bought it. I haven't had a chance to read it. It'll probably go on the stack at some point. It's called Moral Vision, written by George J. quote unquote Rhino Thompson. It is the most, according to the cover, the most influential full length investigation of Dashiell Hammett's novels, including Red Harvest, 
the Dane Curse, the Maltese Falcon, and the Glass Key and the Thin Man. And I wanted to go through and and read what this in-depth analysis was, because I'm going to bet that Hammett may not have been thinking, hey, you, the reader, have to make your choice of whether he is a good guy. Like you said, Matthew, is he a good guy slumming with the scums, or is he a scummy guy trying to make good with with the cops in in society? I don't know. It seems like there's... How do you see him as... Well, I have trouble not seeing him as Humphrey Bogart. And I feel like there was a clearer, there was kind of, to me, at least it felt like a clearer narrative line in the movie version that Spade was, you know, Spade was hanging out with, you know, the bastards to get to the bastards. Mm -hmm. And I don't think it, it, I was, I was kind of surprised by that cynicism and that lack of, that lack of here's your hero character and this is what he does to get by. It really is. Is he even, is our protagonist even a hero? Is he, you know, he's willing to play both sides against the middle. And at one point he says flat out that he hated Archer. Yeah. You know, the whole thing about this is his man's partner. And you think it, in my mind, it's, it's a revenge thing. It's get back for the man who got the man who was your partner and your pal. But he's like, you know, I despised him. I'm like, wait a minute. How did, you know, it, it, so again, it's that dichotomy at the character. He He's willing to go to these ends and do all of these things that are, at the very least, questionable in the name of a man that he you never really seemed to even like. Here's, okay, I just coincidentally flipped to the page in this book. If you wouldn't permit me to read like two paragraphs, Rodrigo. Few critics. Oh, don't get us sued. Few critics, well, it's only two paragraphs. Few critics agree on how we should take the ending. And this is the author. But I argue that the final confrontation between Sam Spade and Bridget O'Shaughnessy represents more clearly than any other in Hammett's writing the nature and scope of his moral vision. Spade's rejection of Bridget is at once pragmatic and moral and is a measure of Hammett's artistic development that he shows these to be interrelated and interdependent. In Red Harvest, the pragmatic strain dominated and the implication was the action in the real world had little or no functional relationship to the moral concerns. Now, then he goes on to say something about the Dane curse. In the Maltese Falcon, there is equal emphasis on the necessity of knowing the real world as it is and on acting according to the principles. Such a reading, however, is clearly at odds with most of the critical estimates of the novel. We're told by one commentator, for example, that Spade is, quote, almost totally amoral and almost cruel, and by another that Sam Spade is simply one of Hammett's tough guys, as amoral or immoral as his antagonist. Robert Edenbaum sees the novel as a battle between villainesses, who is a woman of sentiment and thrives on the sentiment of others, and a hero who has none and who survives because he has none. He would have us believe that Spade's unscrupulousness is the subject of the novel, and he argues that Spade knows Bridget is guilty from the beginning and that he uses her and manipulates her throughout. Irving Mallon, on the other hand, sees Spade as an elusive and indefinable character, one who shares the archetypal qualities of such mystical heroes as uh, Odysseus, Samuel, Jesus, and who yet seems to lack discernible motives for his actions. Hmm. So I guess it's, again, I, I think critics are going to disagree well, on, and on this interpretation. And, they're, they're, and they're clearly from all those interpretations, they're pretty split. Yeah. Rodrigo, how do you see Sam Spade? I see Sam Spade as a man who lives in a rat's nest. And he's doing what he needs to do to get by. What does mm-hmm. he need to get by? He needs money. Yeah. And he needs to not get thrown in jail by the cops. Yeah. And throughout, uh, to me, it's pretty clear throughout this whole thing 
you know, as the plot begins to unfold, that he does everything in his power, whether that is to manipulate other people and whether that is to kill other people mm-hmm. or pin stuff on other people right. to A, survive, and B, get to the bottom of this thing that's causing him problems. Um, you know, Sam Spade doesn't have a, you know, six-year-old daughter. Right. He doesn't have anybody to lo- who looks up to him. He's alone. Even his uh, secretary is very disconnected from him. Right. Like, he has no one else in the world except for himself, and he is just doing everything that he needs to get by. And that bottle of whiskey next to his table that's right so from that sense is he a hero is he a villain he's not either he's a survivor he's basically trying to get to the end of this book alive yeah uh, um as far as i am concerned and that's very interesting to me it's you know once you strip a person down to their bare essentials what do they do and honestly he makes a moral like and by that i mean like a positively moral decision in the end to turn in bridget you know he's saying this is, you know, to me, I know even if it's not like that, he knows that she's playing him mm-hmm. because she might not be at right. that point. Um, you know, he still says, and I'm going to turn you in because that's the way to get to the end of this and because you deserve to be turned in. Right. At the same time, I still think that maybe he's thinking in the back of his head, I don't need this crazy. Oh, yeah, absolutely. This crazy following me around. I see Sam Spade as an opportunist looking out for just himself mm-hmm. and trying to make a b- big buck at the end. And, you know, he could have had the big money at the end, but he tossed it all away, which I thought was interesting for somebody that's always trying to look out for himself. So, Rodrigo, give Mm -hmm. us a summary of Sam Spade, if you would, or uh, the Maltese Falcon, if you would. Um, What your thoughts are and... and... I I really like this book. It's... You know, when I was when I was in college, I took a couple literature classes, and the Maltese Falcon was actually one of the few books that I actually read all the <laughs> way through. Others I skimmed, some I looked up online. Just you know, because eh, you know, the Scarlet Letter, whatever. Um, but I've I've read it, and I've read it more than once, which is extremely rare for me. And yeah, if you want to have fun with the Maltese Falcon, cast your friends as the characters. Oh boy, who and am then, I? And then no, there's, I cast them the first time. The, the but but um, I, I'm Floyd Thursby, huh? Nobody ever meets me, and I'm just dead. Yeah, pretty much. You just show up dead. Um, You're Archer, and and just watch in your own brain how because 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 that's a good you know from your first impression. Say, oh, you know, Bridget O'Shaughnessy is like that attractive chick from human resources right i know her she's mysterious she's kind of nice to me just cast her and like as this stuff unfolds you're like holy crap i can't believe she did this to me yeah yeah. you know it's 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 interesting (laughs) like it's actually a fun game to play with detective novels and i've done it before and it's actually with especially with the maltese welcome which is a very well-written one right and with sam spade who's kind of a blank slate Right. Aside from being, you know, and obviously that's you, whoever right. you are, uh, right. assuming you're a boy and you don't, or you're a you girl. You could be a girl, mind, I suppose, with a... You know, and you don't mind casting yourself as Sam. Sam yeah. is, a, you know, an asexual right. name. Samantha Spade. Um, have you read the prequel book that was written just a few years ago called no. Sam and Archer? I was debating whether to to get that. Um, Matthew, go ahead with what your thoughts are on, on the Maltese Falcon. I think, for me, my favorite part is when... Cairo and Gutman step out of the holodeck and have to watch themselves completely disappear <laughs> because they're hollow matter and the Haradan have arrived. And of course the holodeck gets fixed, but 
that actually explains my point. This is prototypical. Not just, you know, this is not early. This is not like, oh, this is how you do it. This is prototypical to me. This yep. is how Definitely. noir became noir. This is right. This is before Philip Marlowe. Yeah. This is, is the this is, you know, for it's, me, this is the polarizing moment. It's this is German your first real hard boiled Yeah. It's, you know, it was before Davy Jones was even born. <laughs> this is the first hard-boiled novel. This is the thing that, you know, that Frank Miller wants to grow up and be. Yeah. If you look at it from a comic book perspective yeah, and you're you right, say, right. I sure do like me some Sin City, I would say read this. Now, they, the yeah. one – and I will say the only problem for me is not a question of mobility or a question of, you know, how am I going to sit down – it's a question of when am I going to get enough time to sit down and read 200, 200 pages. yada yada pages, you know, that's, my copy. that's the most difficult part for me was time to actually sit down and read it. And as a speed reader, I can go through something and process most of the material, but a lot of the, you know, a lot of the heavy detail that mm-hmm. you guys went into may have avoided me, you know, yeah. it may have gotten well, far even, above my level, but I can even tell then, you that. We're reading it fast enough to where some of the details fall out of our heads yeah. too. And and the oh, good thing about the Maltese Falcon is that it's it's a it's a pretty straightforward book. Uh, obviously, there's twists and turns, but the prose that it's written in is very sort yes. of, you know it doesn't use gigantic words that you have to look right. up. It is all common you know, man. Yeah, short descriptive sentences, and they he gets a lot of mileage out of you know comparing somebody to a teacup. You know, right, 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 and. It's it's interesting to me that this is it's there are things that you would not expect even for the the second that would be influenced by this. You realize there's a character in the Danger Mouse cartoon who is based partially on Gutman. Yep. Baron Silas yep. Greenback yep. is based on and actually named after the or partly named after the actor who played Gutman. Mm-hmm. In the 1941 movie adaptation. So, I mean, this is something to where these have become, this story and these characters have become archetypical. So, even if, you know, you're just bored and you want to read something and try and figure out what's going on and go, oh, okay, well, maybe I don't like noir. This is a good place to start. I do like noir. I don't have a lot of time to read books, but this is something that I sat down and wanted to read. Yeah. And then you made me read Battle Chasers, too. <laughs> Well, you know, what's what's interesting is, as Matthew said, this is something that launched every noir book, every pulpy detective's tale to come after it. And I can't help but think that uh, James Elroy was heavily influenced by Dashiell Hammett. Because if you read his L.A. Quartet, The Black Dahlia, The Big Nowhere, L.A. Confidential, and White Jazz, I've read two of those. I've read Black Dahlia and L.A. Confidential. It just screams time period, even though it's not the same time period. It's like yeah. 10 years after or whatever. Uh, but it, you can see everything that Hammett was doing, Elroy is is being influenced on in those books. And for those of you that have only seen the movie, and the movie's very well done. Oh, yeah. The book is so much more. And I would say this is a book that if you're as big a fan as we are into the noir and the pulp, you you need to read this book. I can't believe I waited this long to read it. I was satisfied with just watching the movie once a year. Mm-hmm. But I'm glad I read the book. All right? Other comments? Other questions? 
Mm, nope. All right, everybody, stay tuned on Monday. We will post the book of the month for May up on the Majorspoilers.com website. And we really thank you for being a part of the Major Spoilers experience, even when we deviate into these different kind of topics. This is something to show that we're not going to do all the time, but once a month, if we can sit down and talk about a book that we've read, I think we'll all be better off uh, for it. And on Tuesday, don't forget, we're going to be back into the comic book realm, talking about something that kind of feels a little bit noirish, a little bit pulpy at the same time, but also fantastical, far-out comic books. Cadillacs and Dinosaurs, or Xenozoic Tales, as it was originally known, by Mark Schultz. Why are we going to look at that? Because Rodrigo loves dinosaurs, and mm-hmm. we know you do too, and we'll t- talk to you next time. If you have any questions, comments, topic ideas for future shows, or would like to sponsor a show, send an email to podcast at Majorspoilers.com. Visit Majorspoilers at Majorspoilers.com and be sure to check out the Major Spoilers forum. You can also follow Major Spoilers on Twitter at twitter.com slash Majorspoilers and on MySpace at myspace.com slash Majorspoilers. Fat Dick's revision of Superman I could save a few bucks and stand around And read through the covers of the comics on the stand But although every other page would be backwards, I suppose I could still read the evens and the odds Well, I don't know Guess I haven't thought this all the way through Plus, as soon as the comic book store guy knew to kick my butt out on the corner What a major spoiler What a major spoiler Way. If I was hulking green or gray, I could just bust through that brick wall, take their comic books away. But then the little meat would deal with all the tanks and bombs and guns. Have you ever tried to read a series with all that going on? Guess I need to rethink this plan. How would I back and board my comics with such huge hands? Guess I already told ya. What a major spoiler. What a major spoiler. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What a major spoiler What a major spoiler Start raving rich like a man of iron Might not be surprised to find That I might actually have the hard cold To follow an entire storyline But would I really even need To read upon all those escapades I mean, who needs such distractions When your sister's such a babe But the downside is such a beast Being shot up in a fine be In the Middle East With a king sign throwing soldier What a major spoiler What a major spoiler Yeah, yeah, yeah What a major spoiler! Major Spoilers Podcast, copyright 2010.